And episode nine, I don't like to predict the future, but I'm going to predict the future. This is going to be an amazing episode. You thought Penny Camp was good. Wait till you hear our next guest, Kent Maravik. Did I? Did I? Close enough. Marinkovich. Marinkovich. Yeah. So I wasn't even close. And you would think after watching NBA basketball with all the East European basketball players, I, I would be better at that. Marinkovic is what? What's well, Czech, actually. Okay. So check that box that I don't know how to pronounce it. So Kent, you are our second ever guest. How does that make you feel? <laughs> You know what they say about second place, right? <laughs> no, no, it feels good. Uh, enjoy hanging out with you at the club all the time, uh, sharing a lot of fun stories, and uh, happy to be part of your podcast here. So believe it or not, a lot of people say, I should be on your podcast. And I'm thinking, uh, no, no, you shouldn't. Kent is one of those people who did not say I should be on your podcast. And I'm thinking, Kent has, has to be on the podcast. So... Kent, we're going to start off a little bit. You you have some varied interests, uh, kite surfing, ultralights. Um, why don't we start with the kite surfing first, how you got into it, uh, what your involvement is with it now, uh, any great kite surfing stories you have? <laughs> sure. So um, I've been kiting for a long time, but basically I grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota, and uh, my dad retired relatively early and I got into windsurfing uh, back then on a lake in um, way up in the uh, Black Hills there at Lake Pactola Reservoir. And uh, that's kind of introduced myself into uh, the sport of windsurfing back then. Um, ended up moving to Florida um, uh, to live with my dad and got into windsurf racing, um, was doing 30 to 40 regattas a year and ended up uh, kind of setting my sights on, uh, on the Olympics for windsurfing. So I made the US sailing team um, with this really aiming at the 1996 Olympics while I was going to uh, Florida State. Um, after the Olympic trials had completed, um, I had to get a job, came down to Miami and, and been working with my company down here for 25 years now with uh, Adventure Sports and the Cabrina kiteboarding brand. Um, and I was the first person in our group to start kiting, I think in 1997. Uh, it was a pretty unique sport back then. Very few people did it. Um, you'd pretty much, it was a downwind sport, you'd pretty much uh, launch it up and you'd end up ending up downwind and having to walk back or catch a ride back. It was super dangerous back then, there was a lot of casualties, um, the gear wasn't quite there. Uh, the first guy in Florida worked for, for me in my office, his name was Raul Argilagos, he's kind of the grandfather of kiteboarding in the state of Florida. And uh, it just kind of butted into this very unique thing that, uh, that kind of consumed my life um, all the way through the fact that I think I pay my mortgage from it now as well. So, so I'm going to jump in. You can hold it. My, my voice is so loud that you, you can hold the microphone. Um, so one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is that I find out things about people that I did not know. So you were in the Olympic trials? Yeah, I was on the U.S. sailing team from 1991 through 97, and um, I lived with one of my best buddies. Uh, he's a uh, four-time Olympian, Mike Gebhardt. He's got two medals, and I just said, well, I want to move in with the, the best guy, and Mike was the guy. We're, we're friends uh, all the way through today. Um, I did not, you, you've got to get first place in your trials to go to the Olympics. It's the only, there's very few sports like that, but 
Um, I went out there, uh, won the first race in the trials in Savannah. I'm thinking, okay, I've got a good opportunity. And and uh, in reality, I had a great regatta and I ended up fourth. Um, Mike ended up going to the Olympics for the United States again. And uh, we had a pretty tough Atlanta Olympics there, but I was there uh, actually commentating at the time. So I got to cheer all the U.S. sailors on. It was a great time over there. So walk us through that experience a little bit, because that uh, I've never met an Olympian before. Well, I'm not. There's a big difference. Magnus over at the club's an Olympian. He's been several times. I was on the U.S. sailing team training for the Olympics. Um, to be an Olympian, a lot of people use this interchangeably. You have to go to the Olympics. Uh, I was an Olympic-class sailor. I was on the U.S. sailing team. On our national team, there's one of... They have five members usually on the uh, U.S. sailing team per class, and that qualifies you for different funding, a lot of travel. When I was in Florida State, I think my first three years in college, I was only in uh, Tallahassee probably three weekends during that, that time frame. I'd never gone to a football game because I was traveling across the globe, uh, racing probably 15 to 20 cr countries a year uh, back then, uh, just windsurfing. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it was a, a lot of time commitment going into that, a lot of fun. But really all the things that I learned about trying to compete, uh, uh, train, be competitive, kind of really, you know, that's all the same as you do at work, same as I do. We just we have a good time. We compete. We try to do a great job, and we try to find uh, ways to win, and, and it's kind of the same thing. I learned all that through windsurfing, really. So your, your class of sailing was windsurfing? Yeah, so um, the first medal for windsurfing I think was from uh, the 1984 Olympics. I think it was an exhibition in 80. 84 was an Olympic uh, sport. Uh, There's a guy named Scott Steele that took a silver medal and that was in LA actually. Um, he took a silver medal for the US back then. Um, <clears throat> since then there's been several different styles of windsurfing boards but when I was on the team it was the Mistral um, Super, or it was called the uh, EMCO, International Mistral Class Organization Board. Um, and then after that, actually, actually after the EMCO, it went to the Neil Pride RSX board, and that's the company that I run, uh, run Neil Pride. So we had our board in the Olympics for, uh, gosh, I think five quadriniums after that. So what you, so what you do now is kite surfing, correct? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what I do now is anything that involves adventure and to get myself a little adrenaline to wake up in the morning. You know, um, kiting really was kind of the hottest thing when it came out. Um, you know, I've been doing it since nineteen. 97, I believe. Um, the technology's changed a lot, but it was really amazing. I mean, uh, it's, it, it packs up in a small little backpack, um, any place with a decent sized beach in a, in a fairly consistent breeze um, allows you to be able to do it. And I mean, you pull the trigger, you, 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 um, you send it, and really even for a recreational user to get 25 to 30 feet of air isn't really a big deal. Um, the amount of adrenaline packed into that sport is amazing and in reality if you go to San Francisco and you look around out there um, It is the new golf uh, You look at any of the venture capitalists all the tech guys every one of them uh, They're all into kiting Silicon Valley Bank. Those are all kiters uh, the Google boat buys loads of kites from us every single year and uh, it's just kind of a new um, way that uh, people surround themselves with other people that uh, share mutual interests I mean, Richard Branson is a great example. He hosts a whole um, event uh, surrounding kiting where kiters come in and they pitch uh, ideas to venture capitalists. It's kind of a neat deal. It was called the, the Mai Tai for many years. But uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a unique sport that's an individual sport, but it's really social, brings people together. So I could tell that my gringa sister has a question or wants to say something. First, wait, before, before, you, before you speak, 
the gringo was a little grumpy before we started this episode because this episode is being recorded during her date night. So we can't linger too long because we're going to interfere with her date night. Your tardiness, and I know the tardiness wasn't due to Kent, so I'm not upset with you, Kent. But anyway, um, I am very interested in the actual motorized um, boards that they're doing now. Huh. Okay, that, and I've seen a lot of those lately. Yeah, that's super cool, actually. Um, you know, we've got uh, along with our company, uh, we primarily run brands, but we also have uh, several retail stores. We have a big one in Maui, one in Coconut Grove, one in Fort Lauderdale. And I think what you're talking about is the electric hydrofoil board that appears to be hovering above oh, the water. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. It. I wasn't sure. I only, I only started seeing it probably like, I don't know, not even a year ago. Well, that, that's interesting. It's interesting that you ask because my wife actually runs, um, she's the largest affiliate for those electric hydrofoils. So she has a, uh, a huge school for it. They do summer camps. They do sales for them. But... <clears throat> I got to be honest with you. It's super cool, um, but to me, it's the jet the jet ski equivalent to kite surfing or wing surfing, for example. Uh, I think it's neat. You pull the trigger, you have a good time with it. But if you want to make something a lifelong sport, it's probably going to be closer to kiting or wing surfing. I I can't say that in front of my wife because she'd probably beat me down. <laughs> well, I think the girls are attracted more. Well, not necessarily the girls. I don't want to say all women and all that, because I know women are just as good as men and probably better than some men at kite surfing. But for somebody who's 49 years old and careful with their sound, I think that attracts me more. That's all. Is it, is it less, um, I don't know, is it easier to do? I would think it would be, or is it just different? Yeah, I mean, I tell you, <clears throat> it is part of learning how to, there's a new sport, the fastest growing water sport in the world is called wing surfing. And you'll see them when you hit the water now. They're going to be hanging on to what, what appears to be a, Really, it looks like a wing, but you're just hanging onto it in your hands, and you've got a short board, and you're riding a hydrofoil that rises up above the water. It's purely powered by the wind. Most lessons um, that teach wing surfing start with an electric hydrofoil. So you're going to start, and then you graduate to the wing. But it's funny, yeah, the comment about the women, because in reality, if I look out there on, on the beaches, I'd say that we're pretty close to 50-50 for wing surfers being women. It's, it's just, they've gravitated to this sport. It's so social. And, uh, and actually, it just allows you to really be something unique and different. And yeah, I think that the electric hydrofoil is a super cool thing. It's kind of turnkey. Within an hour and a half, you're going to be out there ripping it up, having a good time on it. Wing surfing is going to take a little longer, but it's really going to be something that you can do the rest of your life, I think. So let me ask you a question. When, when I was growing up, I saw a lot of windsurfers. And then it was kite surfers, and now it's wing surfers. Can you go through the differences between the three things and what they are? Sure. So uh, windsurfing, all the way back in the 80s, was probably one of the hottest sports in the entire world. That's what I remember. It was big. Wasn't it like even in the opening of Miami Vice, I think? Of course. They, yeah, they had the girl uh, on the windsurfer doing a head dip. And windsurfing was just this uh, cool beach sport, very similar to what the original Hobie Cats had, where you could bring it up onto the beach. It, it, it was a lifestyle. <clears throat> and, but windsurfing, really, as it, as it grew, it kind of came up to this, just the top part of that pyramid, very 
performance oriented. It was very gear intensive. Really, in the end of the day, it became fairly expensive. I mean, a setup would probably run you over ten thousand dollars today. Wow! And and you'd probably have to have a, a van to be able to carry all of your equipment. It took a long time to rig up. It was heavy, and I think that's where kite surfing kind of brought it in. Um, kite surfing worked in a little less wind than windsurfing did. Um, it allowed you to get that adrenaline fix in probably fifteen knots, whereas a windsurfer took you twenty to twenty-five. And kite surfers could do 30 feet of air, where on a great day in a windsurfer, you're probably hitting 10 to 15 feet of air off, off a piece of chop. So I think it just filled that kind of uh, adrenaline junky hole that people need to have filled out there. And now I'm looking forward and you're seeing that wing surfing is the hottest thing going, W-I-N-G surfing. And wing surfing is pretty much the thing that's kind of finishing windsurfing, I think because it's an inflatable wing. You pump it up, put it in your hands, it weighs about five pounds, but it's actually uh, lifting you. So there's no weight involved when, when you're riding. Um, you're on a very small board and a hydrofoil. Uh, you can get out there in winds as little as about 10 miles per hour and up to any maximum that you want. You choose your different size wings versus uh, uh, the type of wind that you have in the day. But I think it's a perfect complement to surfing because hydrofoils surf incredibly well. Um, so basically you're riding the wing out, you're hopping on a wave, you're putting the wing behind you and you're surfing in. It's a really free kind of fun sport. You know, for me it's, it's vastly different from kite surfing because kite surfing is uh, just a lot more adrenaline involved, maybe a little less surfy, but on flat water, if I were to pick the two, I'd take kites over wings any day. And why, and why is that? Because, um, Wing surfing, uh, it, it's a little bit slower. Um, on flat water, you can still probably uh, get a jump of you know seven or, or eight or even ten feet high. But um, a, a basic person on a, on a kite can do in fifteen to eighteen knots of wind can do uh, twenty feet of air. Um, and if you get into that nice twenty twenty five knots that we have out here in the winter all the time, you know hitting thirty to thirty five feet of air. Uh, even for a recreational user, is well within your grasp. I mean, we live in Miami, right right outside of Stiltsville, right? And those Stiltsville uh, houses and the flats surrounding those houses, it, it's really, it would be like the veil of flat water kiting. You know, if, if, if you go on YouTube and, and, and look at kite surfer crashes into house, uh, one of, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dimitri, uh, was out there and uh, several years ago, and he was actually jumping, clearing the houses. Now, if you were going to clear a Stiltsville house, you'd probably do a flat one, but he picked the one that had the A-frame on it, and he cleared it twice. He had video. He went for the third time. He hit those those poles on top, broke all of his ribs, fell off onto the deck, got yanked over, and then, I, if I'm correct, I think he, he almost went to jail after that and definitely probably got sued for, for, for trespassing on those houses out there, but it was a hell of a story, and he's a durable guy, but it kind of it lends itself to, I mean, he was hitting 40 feet of air to clear those houses, and you have to have pretty extreme confidence to be able to do that. I, I just feel with my luck... Yeah, Ron, you're not doing that, but the adrenaline rush that you get with kite surfing, it doesn't seem to compare to the other at all. I mean, I think you could just get a killer adrenaline rush with the kite surfing that you can't with the other. Well, I wouldn't do wing surfing for one specific reason, because I know my luck, and I would underestimate how gusty it is, and the wind would be out of the north, and I would get a gust of wind, and when I finally came down, there would be a Cuban gunboat waiting for me. 
So I'm not going to put myself into that into that situation where I just um, I go wildly off course for about 90 miles. So. Yeah, she does a lot of instruction on on kites, wings, and hydrofoils, actually. But, you know, back to your point on the safety side, I know you're making a joke there, but the truth is, is the neat thing about wing surfing is that it's a very easy entry for what some would consider to be a kind of a progressive sport, but it doesn't have the inherent, um, you know, risks that some people associate with kite surfing. So I think that if you were a paddle boarder, yeah, if you're a paddle boarder, you can easily step onto wing surfing and then graduate to kite surfing after that, after you understand kind of the conditions that you can and cannot go in. Well, I have paddle boarded, I have paddle boarded successfully, which proves that anyone could do it. And I actually, you actually have me intrigued about the wing surfing, but I would do it on a day that's not too windy. Well, I, that's funny because it's actually much easier to do in, in strong wind. In light wind, it takes a lot of technique and it's, and it's extremely cardiovascular when it's light. But when it's windy, you pretty much lock in and go, man. I mean, I tell you, I watched my wife out there it's, and she's super fit. And uh, it's the first thing that I'm going to admit to that she's actually completely dominates me in. And, uh, and I like to see it, but, and I think it's just a fantastic sport for everyone, but we've got people as little, as young as six years old hanging on the wings and probably seven to eight years old hopping on hydrofoils on wings already. I, I don't know. I just keep thinking about. The price point seems very reasonable where most people could afford to do this sport, which is really awesome. I don't know. I just keep thinking about the movie Up with all the balloons. Just give him your beer and, and have him keep well, He's got an extra beer here. <laughs> yeah, I've. So, Ken actually wins best guess so far. Sorry, Tom, because Ken provided beer. Why don't, why don't you tell us about this really delicious beer? I, I thought when we went to the launch party, I'd have to be polite and go, oh, hey, Ken, that was great beer. And then couldn't wait to get to my Corona Lights. But, um, this beer is actually like a Corona Light, but just has enough additional beer taste where it's actually even better. So what's the name of this beer and what's the story behind it? <laughs> great. Yeah, actually, um, there's a great story behind this thing. So the beer is actually brewed by Estuary Brewing Company out of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I've got a friend, uh, Scott Harrison. He's a retired uh, special Forces operative. I think I don't think he's 40 years old, but he's retired. Um, he used to own, or he still has ownership in Vail Brewing Company as well. So he's experienced in this. He brewed his first beer uh, while he was in Afghanistan in pretty harsh conditions, actually. And that's how he got into brewing, just taking his mind off of things. But um, interestingly, so this is the uh, Drifter Lager from Estuary. Um, it's pretty cool. It's got a Cabrina kite on the front. Uh, we have it's a collaborative effort. Basically, uh, Scott uh, and I were invited uh, by uh, just a great guy, Mike Knoll. He's a member over at Coral Reef Yacht Club, and Mike was a member of SEAL Team Six. Um, uh, right here, he's, he was a he was a gringo from Miami. Um, he was a lifeguard out on Miami Beach before he um, enlisted in the Navy and actually 
uh, became a member of the top uh, SEAL team. Um, so through time, uh, Mike had some successful business ventures and uh, it's just the most generous guy in the world. Um, he was a friend, but more of an acquaintance than a friend at the time. And he said, hey, Kent, we're doing a guy's kite surfing trip. He loves kite surfing uh, on his boat over in the Bahamas. He said, hey, get yourself over to uh, Staniel K. We'll pick you up and, and let's spend the week kite surfing. So I go over there. I'm like, all right. Um, fly over to uh, Staniel K. Another buddy w went with me and uh, they picked me up on a beautiful 38 uh, Invincible boat. I'm like, man, this is a great trip. Little did I know that was the tender to the boat that we were staying on. <laughs> so uh, we, we had about, uh, I think we had six, six uh, guys uh, on the guys trip. Of course, when somebody says a guys trip, I, my, my ideas are entirely different than, than, than the kite surfing that we were doing in the, in the diving. But um, we got into this boat and I got to meet Scott there. Um, we had a ton of kiting. He had his first experience kiting. He, he yanked himself over some sandbars, got scuzzed up. Next day we went diving. He got the biggest lobster, about a six pound lobster. He'd never been lobster diving before or kite surfing. We're sitting on the back of this boat, looking at the water and, and having a couple beers. And he says, man, this is the best time I've ever had. I got a lot of buddies that used to have a lot of adrenaline. They were rock climbers, mountaineers, cyclists, people that have been in, in combat. And he says, God, I'd love to find a way to give these guys some adrenaline back. And I think kiting's excellent. Is there something we can do together? So about a week after we got back from the Bahamas, uh, he hopped on the phone. He said, man, I think we should do a collaborative beer. And, and what I'd like to do is we're going to put the proceeds from this thing to a project that we developed called the Newfound Freedom Project. And this project takes uh, people that might have uh, certain physical disabilities. They don't have to be veterans, uh, just any physical disability. And we teach them core sports like kite surfing, surfing, wing surfing, hydrofoiling, and, um, and give them the experience. And what we did decided to do is we're gonna have a three, it's a three year program basically uh, to start. So the first year we provided them with the experience, um, give an opportunity to try this thing. So we had uh, clinics um, in Charleston, South Carolina. We did one in Stiltsville uh, in Miami, and then we did one in Hood River, Oregon. And now we're developing equipment um, hydrofoils that will have tan they'll be tandem hydrofoils so your instructor can be on the back we can have somebody whether they're in a chair in the front they're going to be able to do over 30 knots on a hydrofoil on a kite with their instructor right on the board with them and, and then the third season we're going to take what we learned from instruction and from the, what we developed uh, with Cabrina um, uh, kite surfing uh, and we're going to put them into global centers where people can go uh, with their families whether they have uh, physical disabilities or not and have a great time on equipment provided by Karina. So, so the, the beer is from Estuary Brewing Company. I've, I've tried all three kinds. I definitely, my personal preference is the Drifter which we are drinking right now which is fabulous and I, and I love the can. Um, so just to be clear, a portion of the proceeds go to the organization that you were just talking about and the name of that organization is? Yeah, so the organization is the Newfound Freedom Project, but um, the actual nonprofit is called Tidal Flow and it's a division of, um, uh, it's a sailing group and they run the, the uh, nonprofit. In the first year we donated over 25% of total revenues of the Drifter to the project. And we don't pay any salaries. It's entirely volunteer. All we did was pay airfare, accommodations, meals, and instruction for the participants. Everybody else volunteered their time. 
going forward, now we just got in with the number one distributor in Florida, Gold Coast Distribution. Uh, we're going to be in Milam's, Whole Foods, uh, Publix, you name it, all of your best local drinking bars. And now what I've done is I'm going to take my license fee that um, would normally go into this, and I'm donating my entire license fee. So 6% of, of this product will always go back into Tidal Flow. That's the agreement that we've come up with. So um, it's a great way that you can kind of uh, drink a great beer and, uh, and support a great cause. That's the type of charitable giving that I'm behind 100%, knowing the more I drink, the more I'm helping people. So I, I am in 100%. Um, I'm going to install a tap in my house because I'm sure the proceeds from a keg are better than the proceeds from a can, correct? No, no, they, they, they're, they're actual uh, equal, but you do a lot more spillage on the keg. There we go. Well, I, I'm... I, I'm, uh, I like to keep the spillage internal, so you'd be remarkable. You'd, you'd be surprised how little spillage there is. So you keep saying the name of your company, Cabrina, is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, our largest brand. So um, my company's uh, name is Adventure Sports Inc. Uh, we have retail facilities in Maui, Hawaii, um, Coconut Grove, Florida, and, and Fort Lauderdale. But our primary business is really uh, uh, our brand, Cabrina, which is... Uh, one of the largest kite surfing and adventure water sports brands in the world. Um, our design facilities are in Maui, Hawaii. Um, we have uh, engineers in South Africa. Our headquarters is based right here in Miami for administration. And um, it's probably the coolest company in the entire world. We make really cool stuff. Everything we do is authentic and, um, and real. And, and that's what went into this beer. We didn't just slap a label on a beer, we developed the beer. We didn't just uh, sponsor an event, we created the foundation. Everything we do, we really strive to be authentic. I've been with the company for 25 years. I've got a lot of people with me that have been uh, probably for 15 to 20 years. And um, it's just, uh, it's a great group to work with. Um, all of our owners are uh, passionate water sports enthusiasts and adventure seekers just like me. And that's kind of what, what helps to keep that passion when we compete against uh, big private equity or, or hedge funds uh, that own the other companies. And uh, we just love going in and kicking the hell out of them because uh, we're people that really like what we're doing and we're competitive. And the name of your company sounds just like Caipirinha. Well, that, and, and actually, uh, we're really big in Brazil too. And uh, Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we're definitely number one brand in Brazil as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we're Cabrinas, uh, not Caipirinha, but uh, been known to have a couple of caipirinhas uh, after a good day of uh, Rancho do Kite off of Praia, one of the best um, spots to kite surf in anywhere in Brazil. It's an amazing spot down there. Well, as is the just in Miami, just a gringo from Miami tradition, when a segment goes well, before we screw it up, uh, we wrap it up and then get ready for the next segment. So. I feel like we got a good background on kite surfing and wing surfing and windsurfing and uh, who you are and what you do and, and the great work you do and the great beer you guys make. Oh my gosh. Uh, I can't wait until it's available so I could have it on ice in the back of my boat. You ever notice how much colder beer is on ice than in the coldest fridge? Oh man. And, and that's what we did. We wanted a beer that you could drink. 20 of them. I'm a fisherman from in South Florida here. If you're going to go on a boat, you're going to knock back. Yeah, you got to drink 20. <laughs> yeah. You got to drink 20. You can do it with these. Yeah, that's the number. So we're going to wrap this up. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 
some stories specific to kite surfing, other types of surfing that I don't even remember the name with that involve a motor and ultralights. Trust me, you will be entertained. So we are taking a break and we will come back in segment two with Kent Marinkovich. Perfect. There you go. Welcome back to episode nine of Just the Gringo from Miami, featuring Kent Marinkovich, uh, our second ever guest uh, with the Gringo and the Gringa. And this is segment two. We've already covered the background and it was fascinating, the differences between kite surfing and windsurfing and wing surfing uh, for all of the adrenaline junkies. I don't know. I get a burst of adrenaline when a light that's usually red, I catch green. That's that's usually enough adrenaline for me. But um, I'm wired a little different from Ken and his buddies uh, who make up the core of the very dynamic Cabrinha team. I, it makes me think of Kaiperinha, which makes me very happy, which also gives me a, a little bit of adrenaline. So, Kent, in this segment, you've told some crazy, hilarious stories uh, about different aspects of kite surfing and ultralights and uh, some kind of motorized thing. Uh, what, what do you want to start off with? What, what, what's a good one? Yeah, maybe uh, go back to 2001 or so um, when I kited to Cuba from Key West. Um, That's my worst yeah. nightmare. Yeah, most people don't go that direction. Is the thing. <laughs> yeah, no, we. Um, you know, I was one of the first kite servers around, and um, a group approached me and they they said, "Hey, we're we're trying to put together a world record, a Red Bull event to kite surf from Key West to Cuba. Are you in?" I said, "Hell yeah, I'm in. Let, let, let's do it." And uh, we had um, God. I think we started off with five riders. Um, most of them were my friends, uh, Oliver Butch, myself, Paul Menta from Key West. He has Key West Legal Rum. It's a killer, killer little rum joint down there. Um, Fabrice, one of the French guys, and Neil Hutchinson, who lives up in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, so we did some training stuff in the Bahamas, long distance, what have you. And, and it was on a holding pattern, essentially. So we needed to have the right wind. It had to be out of the north to northeast. Um, so we could take off in Key West and make it. Our plan was to go to Havana. So, wait, did, did the Cubans know you were coming? You know, I think the answer. Well, that, that's going to be the part of the story. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, is that uh, how I understand it works is that Red Bull goes down there early, uh, and and uh, they become fully sponsored, which means they probably paid everybody and were fully sponsored. So then you can do it, right? Um, so we, we went down to Key West uh, about two days before Christmas because the wind looked like it was going to be in the right uh, speed, direction, section, you know, had everything going. And Oliver, well, all of us were staying in different hotel rooms, but Oliver was my, he's a good friend, and he was my, um, my roommate. And, you know, he takes things a little less seriously than I do because I got a real job and he's a male model, you know. And I put on one of these damn uh, patches behind your ears. He said, what are you doing? Oh, you, oh you're going to get sick. I'm like, no, I got my own, but I, I usually don't get sick. But I said, I can't imagine anything worse 
than number one, not getting this world record and making it, but number two, sitting on that boat and throwing up for the next 13 hours on the way down there. And he's he laughed it off. So we get up in the morning, winds about 25 gusting to 35, way more than what we had hoped for. Discovery Channel was filming this thing. We had them on, uh, we, had, we had a 42 offshore racing catamaran. Uh, we had a, back then in 2000, you remember a 36 foot contender was a big boat back then. And we had a 56 Bertram. But think ahead, 25 to 35 knots out of the north in the Straits, going right. to Cuba. So Nobody's doing that right. these days. And, and what were the waves? They had to be six to eight, uh, right? No, they were, we had nothing less than 12. They were 12 to 14. That's it insane. It was enormous. In a 36-foot boat. Yeah, well, let me tell you what happened. So we're taking photos for, for Discovery Channel and for Red Bull, you know, with their buoy before we take off. We're jumping. My buddy Oliver, we're about a mile offshore, mile and a half offshore. The wind's offshore of Smathers Beach from where we took off. My buddy Oliver is jumping. He jumps on the upside of the boat, hooks his kite into the outriggers, rips the outriggers off that Bertram, destroys his kite. Oliver is now sitting there with no kite. He was my roommate, mocking me for putting a, a patch on. He can't swim back. We're taking off. So he had to sit on that boat. He, he threw up for 10 and a half hours straight. <laughs> he should have been... He should have been... That's freaking hilarious. He should have been educating himself on outriggers instead of mocking you for putting uh, the thing behind your ear. No, I mean, so he gets in the boat, we hit the start button, boom, we're racing off across uh, the, the straits in, inbound for Cuba. Um, as we got into the deeper uh, water, the waves kicked up to an enormous level. We we're on the water for about, gosh, it must have been about an hour and a half, and Paul Menta, uh, he's pretty much the mayor of Key West, I think, nowadays, but he just returned from uh, Venezuela from a kite serving trip and he had a, some sort of stomach issue. He was dehydrated. I look over at him, the waves were enormous. And I saw him unconscious, hooked into his kite, flying from wave to wave. His body would land, the kite would take off and he was just out. So the boat went up, grabbed his kite. They transferred him onto, a, onto the catamaran in 14 foot seas. And he's out. I'm in the water swimming for about an hour and a half in the middle of the Gulf Stream in, in, in enormous waves. They get him on, the catamaran takes off because they got to get him to a hospital. But at this point, we're, we're probably easy. We, we couldn't have gone back. We're probably easier to go to Cuba. So the rest of us take off. Um, I'm, I was in front of the Bertram riding. And I looked back and the Bertram surfed down a wave stuffed the nose of that boat and spun around. A 56-foot yeah. Bertram did that? Yeah. That's unbelievable. And, and I looked, I said, okay. I went back behind the boat, and remember, this is 2001. Your camera, your waterproof camera is a is a Kodak uh, in a plastic, um, it's in a plastic right. waterproof it's case. Free. And it's got the little blue rubber, uh, the green rubber band on it. And I had that. So I got back behind that boat, and the next wave that it went down, and it stuffed, and I got a photo in my house. It's not a great photo, but of the props of that Bertram out of the water. Uh, That's it, insane. And at that point, I'm looking. I'm like, I'm way safer on my kiteboard than those bastards in that boat. Well, 14-foot waves are huge. For people who don't boat, you know, you get above three-foot waves, it starts to be uncomfortable. Um, the, the most I've ever been out with on my 30-foot boat is six to eights. That was... 
uh, uncomfortable to the point where when we got back, we all had to like uh, either uh, get heavy duty massages or um, take uh, muscle relaxants. But I cannot picture a 36 foot boat in 14 foot waves. How does that even work? Well, let me tell you, well, the 56 had, had a bigger problem. Interestingly, so what happened on the way back, after the 42, it was called Green Flash, and this guy driving it, his name was Dave Calvert, and Dave Calvert drove Steve Fawcett's boat called PlayStation across the Atlantic, set the transatlantic world record. So I was like, Dave is a qualified guy. And when they took off, they had all the Red Bull people on that boat, everybody's sick or dying, and, and, and they stuffed the hulls. This boat drove on a, on a tiller, not on a wheel. And it almost went over frontward. Paul was passed out on, on, a, on a bench in the back. This thing went forward. He went flying forward. He hit his head and dislocated his shoulder on a bulkhead in the front. So by the time they got him into Cuba, it looked like he'd fallen asleep and they beat the hell out of him with a baseball bat. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to understand that probably one of the most dangerous places on earth is at, on the water near Kent. So I'm, I'm making a mental note. No, I'm, I, I, I gotta be honest, I, I am a lucky guy. I just am. Yeah, everyone around you gets destroyed, and, but you're just fine. No, so, so they left, and, and, and the thing is the wind had turned, it was a no, little- No, no, they, they fled. They fled. Okay, there's a difference. You know, the wind had turned a little bit um, more to, uh, out of the left, which made it impossible to go to Havana. So we had to change plans midstream, and we were going to go to a place called Veradero, which is a little beach town. And if you look at, at, at that, look it up on Google Earth, there's one channel that goes in there, and it says, impassable in northwest winds. We had northwest winds. So they left. Um, it finally got to the point that it was too rough for the Bertram. The Bertram had to take off. I thought Bertrams were made for heavy seas. I think they are, but but I think the truth is it probably had something to do with the people that were on that boat, the Discovery people that were on that boat. And uh, and I remember there was some raw video that it went surfing down a wave, it stuck, and, and they had the big camera on top, and it was so funny you could hear the captain say, Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> you know, the captain's not supposed to ever say that, you know? And you could see the camera go down to the deck. But they took off and they left the, there was three, uh, what do we have? Three of us left on the water. It was uh, Fabrice, Neil Hutchinson, and myself, because Paul and, and Olive were out. Now it's, it's getting dark and we're getting closer to the Cuba coast. Everybody's wrecked and tired. We have a 36 Bertram that was fast enough to stay between the waves and be maneuverable so it wasn't getting overtaken. I surfed one wave for two hours straight where I couldn't look over the front and I didn't fall off the back. And as we were getting closer to the coast, all I could remember is because we were on Discovery Channel, I wanted to look cool. So I put this, this uh, I had flotation on and I had a uh, camel pack, but I put this black, it was a real cool Lycra and it was very dark blue. And they gave us, we had these uh, light sticks and I said, gosh, it's going to look funny for the interviews and my chest if I have a light stick, light stick up here. So I, I put them way in the back. So as we're pulling into the coast, the waves are crashing on the coast. It's pitch black. As it turns out, we're going to have to ditch the kites in the open ocean. They're going to have to pick us up one by one so we can have a chance of getting into that area. Because it wasn't beach. It was mainly rocky. And I'd never come up there. And I hadn't done it at night, not in 25 to 35 knots. So I'm the first guy... I'm like, all right, I'm going to throw my kite, let it go. There, you know, it's 
2,000 bucks, but I just want to live. I threw my kite, the boat turned downwind and went racing off after my kite, and it was probably only about eight to 10 foot now. I'm in the water, pitch black, with, with darkness on, and I can't get my damn glow sticks. I am screaming at the guys going downwind, but they went perfectly downwind, and I saw the boat driver and the organizer of the event going to blows on the boat because one of them was fighting to come back and get me. The other one said, no, he said to get the kite. Thankfully, the right guy won. The boat came back and found me in the water. I came up spitting mad. We got the other guy's kites out of the air, got the guys into the boat, and now the, the reality started. We had to go in this channel. Waves are breaking over the channel, and we've got to go down this long path and take a left to get into the marina. And all the guys were cold. I was, I was frigid. And I sat up on the gunnel of that boat, and the other guys hopped down low. They're trying to stay warm. They're like, what are you doing up there? I'm like, you guys are idiots, because this boat is 100% going to flip over when we come in this channel, and I'm hopping out and swimming up on that jetty. <laughs> and long story short, they gunned it. They stuck it in between the waves. We turned into this beautiful marina in Veradero. Uh, and I just felt like we had won the lottery. Of course, that came with a lot of uh, Cuban rum, absolutely trashed. And then the remainder of the story gets way worse after the uh, government officials came down. So that, that story has everything I try and avoid. First of all, every time I, my engines don't start immediately and I'm out in the ocean, I immediately think the next conversation I'm going to have is some guy telling, telling me, uh, Presidente Castro will see you now. So the fact that you went there uh, voluntarily, and I'm sorry, if it's more than three and f- three to five, I just don't go out. That That's insane. A 36-foot boat in 12 to 14. Well, I'm glad you made it back, which only allowed you to do even stupider things, uh, which is a perfect segue into uh, your ultralight um, interest. So why don't you explain what an ultralight is and your involvement in it? Sure. Well, first of all, ultralight, there's a couple different classes, right? So you've got um, uh, an ultralight, which is an unrated aircraft. So rated aircraft, like a light sport craft or, or, or a basic aircraft, will have end numbers, uh, tail numbers. So I actually fly a light sport craft, which, which is regulated by the FAA. So it's it, mine is N145 Alpha Tango. And I have a very unique aircraft. It's called an Airtime Signet. And a Signet is a amphibious aircraft, but it's also got landing gear. It's got titanium landing gear. So you can go to runways or primarily I can take it off at a, uh, at a boat launch. I can drive it into the water, pop up the landing gear. And it's a delta wing, which means the wing looks like a, it's a weight shift aircraft. The wing looks like a hang glider. So mine's a two-person uh, aircraft. It's got a Rotax um, 912S, uh, um, which is the same as you'd find in a regular aircraft. And because I've got an electrical system, I have to abide by the same um, uh, guidelines that the aircraft uh, flying around Miami in, in, in class uh, B airspace do. So I have ADS uh, in and out, uh, ADS-B in and out, so other aircraft can see me. But I, I cruise at about... Uh, 51 miles per hour. My stall speed's about 36. 51 miles an hour? No, you're like walking up there. You can't even go on I-95 at 51 miles an hour. No, it's... But I tell you what, 
you take off. Um, I remember when I bought the thing. I, I, I think I'm like you. If I'm going to do something, I got to go all in before I learn anything about it. So I bought the dang thing, and God brought it down to my house. Michael Percy, uh, he happens to be a dealer of, of, of my Cabrina kites up in uh, up in Fort Walton Beach. Uh, he brought it down and said, "All right, it's yours. Let me take you for a flight." He handed me the bar, so it's got two seats, front and back. But you can fly in both seats, actually. Both people have both controls. So he, that sounds like an extraordinarily bad idea right there. No, it's a good idea because I don't know how you would learn if you didn't have the confidence to have somebody else have your back. He handed me the bar. And literally, I'm picturing the two guys fighting on the deck of the Bertrand. Oh, no, no, no. There's no fighting. I'm fighting to give it back to him because I would have lasted for about six seconds before I would have been inverted and dead. Uh, it's an amazing – now that I fly it, I'm solo indoors. I passed my written um, test you know, for the um, uh, FAA, uh, but of course during COVID I didn't take my check ride. My written exam now <laughs> expired and I got to take that stuff again. But it's, uh, it's an amazing aircraft. Uh, you can land it on the flats. You can put a, um, a pole down and go uh, fly fishing for bonefish if you want. It's a perfect air aircraft to take Assuming over the you live. Assuming you live. But it's, it's not like that. Uh, in reality, you could go down pretty quick. I've had some close experiences. But I think you have to go over those steps um, with anything to own it, right? So I can tell from my sister's body language that she, she, she wants to say something. How did you find out about this, doing this, um, information about this? I've never heard of this before, ever. Well, I tell you what, you got to look it up. It's Airtime Aircraft, and it's the Signet version. And actually, it's, it's an, it, it kind of ties into another unique story. There's a, just an inspirational guy. His name's Damien Leroy. And Damien was a top professional um, kite server for Cabrina. He still is a sponsored athlete on our team. And he was actually a sales representative for the Southeast for us. And Damien was the one that told me about this airtime aircraft. He said, man, this thing is, all, is for you. And, and he'd, he'd taken one up and flown with Michael Percy. Uh, they had a great time. So he told me about it. I looked it up and, and I bought the doggone thing. And, it, it, you know, ultralights are relatively inexpensive. You can probably get one for 15 or 20 grand. These things are going to hit you a little bit. You can almost, you can probably get a real plane. But, you know, if you get it decked out, you're probably going to spend sixty-five or 70000 on on it. But it's rated, airworthiness certificate. It's what you want to fly. But Damien was my friend that, uh, that had uh, recommended I, I, I do this. And it's so funny because I remember when we brought Damien on the team as an athlete, uh, we were in Hood River, Oregon. And, and he wasn't the greatest rider at the time, but he had a pilot's license. And I said, man, I'm going to sponsor that kid. I don't know if he's ever going to win anything, but sure as hell I'm going to go fly with him occasionally. And uh, from what I know about Damien now, I probably wouldn't have gone to fly with him because I think we were sitting over, over at Coral Reef recently, and I told you about an amazing survival story, and it happened to be related to, to this young guy, Damien Leroy. Uh, you can look it up. Um, well, tell us about that story because that's a great yeah, it's, story. It's pretty amazing, and, and I, you know, I can tell the story now because he's just an inspirational young guy. But um, Damien was out on a powered paraglider. And what, is, it, what is that? Okay, a powered paraglider basically looks like, it looks like a parachute, but those are the guys flying with the big old fans on their back. Right? You've seen this. Go ahead. <laughs> You've seen that. <laughs> yeah, this, this sounds like bad idea wrapped inside bad idea. 
but I, I'm going to tell you, it, it's not. It, it, it's a very simple thing to learn how to do. It doesn't require a, a real certification that I know of. I could learn how to jump off the roof of this building in five seconds. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. It costs you nothing. <laughs> um, now he was he was up in in Jupiter, and they they take off from the sand dunes there, and, and he was flying around, and um, and you know. <laughs> Operator air would probably come into this, um, but in reality, these things are not built for uh, acrobatics. Number one, after you learn to fly, you, you understand that height is your friend. The higher you fly, the more time you have to think. And uh, he was up there, uh, did some maneuvers that might have been a little more extreme than he should have done on that. He twisted his lines maybe 20 or 30 times. Um, wind was slightly onshore, but he's over the water. But he was probably only about 500 feet when it happened. And you can see, because he's got video, he's got three video angles. He's got his, one on his head, certainly one on his foot, and one somewhere else. And you could see him trying to get through it, uh, trying to figure it out so he could get his steering back. Wouldn't be a problem if you're at 1,500 feet, but at 500 feet, you have to think quick. So he's like, all right, I'm over the water. This isn't going to work out. I need to get out of my, out of my apparatus so I can swim home and not not sink with this 70 pound fan on my back you should see my sister's face right now it's like she does not want to know how the story ends but continue yeah so i mean this guy's in it an amazing athlete a quick thinker and he did a lot of the things right i think but um you know you can't ever second guess it because he survived it right uh, I bet he, anybody that has a chance to look back at some decisions they made, maybe they would have done some things. Oh like my that. gosh, you're talking <laughs> to the king of looking back at decisions and would have done something different. But continue. So uh, he feels he's going to go into the water. If you look up the statistics on, on those power paragliders, if you die on them, you die by drowning because they go in the water and, and, and you have a 70-pound motor on your back and you get stuck under your parachute. What, what, what is the life expectancy of a power paraglider parachute person is it like of a common house fly is it a <laughs> no, little, little I don't think it's longer? like that at all I think it's it's unbelievably safe uh, several things have to happen uh, for it to go bad but he um, he made the decision that he said hey I'm gonna I'm gonna this thing's going in the water I'm gonna lose my stuff but I'm, he unhooked got 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 unstrapped he's ready to make sure he doesn't fall underneath his canopy and um, and like you would if you were jumping off the roof of your house, you're like, whoa, that looks pretty high still. He got out and he hung below the carriage of his of his seat. And the wind, the, the wing finally turned. He looked down, he's still probably about 180 feet in the air. The wind turned, he's now flying across over, over the beach and hanging at about 150 feet, flying over the beach, flying for, towards a construction zone. So he's some dude unstrapped, hanging on with his arm, sort of sort of heading involuntarily towards a construction site. Yeah, and I mean, like, like I said, you, there's a lot of things you might do different, but... Yeah, like uh, not doing it that started, particular yeah. activity. I saw, I saw something, I saw something like this on the news. Yeah, it's on Good Morning America. It was, it was everywhere, yeah. Uh, because he lived. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so go ahead. I did see this on the news. Go ahead. Yeah, so he, as he was going across there, he made a decision. You know, you can't second guess it. He looked down. He said, man, those look like some soft mangroves. 
And from the ground, people were filming him. He let go. And how high was he when he let go? About 150 feet. Oh my God. Yeah. And the soft <laughs> stuff on the ground was not nearly as soft. He came in. I'm sorry, jello <laughs> at 150 feet is not soft. Yeah. No, but let, let me tell you, to, to, to this guy's credit, uh, as I mean, he, he was so fit. A, a regular guy would have had a hard time with this. He, he went in, and there was a young guy up in Jupiter, went running back in, to, to, was the first to him, and it was another young kite surfing athlete. Damien was pretty broken. You know, I think he broke his femur, all of his ribs on both sides, his back. Broke a lot of stuff. And um, and the young guy comes up, and, and, and to, to Damien's just credit because of who he is, he was more worried about that kid feeling that Damien wasn't going to make it. And and there's a GoPro on Damien's foot, and he, he the kid's up. Damien's like, come here, come here. The kid says, what, what, what can I do? Come here. And then he lifts his foot up a little bit, and the, and the GoPro's blinking. He says, I got the shot. <laughs> Just to keep him calm, and but you know the best the, the best thing about this is that you know he spent several months uh, uh, in the hospital there, um, and y- you can't write this stuff. He married his nurse, and they just had their first kid about uh, gosh, I think it's about a year and a half ago. Now. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know he was the guy that. Well, here you go. He's the guy that recommended I buy this this signet. <laughs> But in reality, you know, everybody, uh, their, their risk threshold is different. Uh, uh, I don't have an enormous one. Uh, the, the aircraft I bought is, is the right one to, to have. What does scare you? Is there anything that scares you that you want to do or have done that you feel, oh, I maybe shouldn't do this or, oh, I'm glad I made it through this or what would it be? I mean, you know, in my job, you know, I sponsor uh, athletes, a lot of different athletes. We also, we're also the global licensee for Dekine for all of their wind and wave uh, products. Um, so I work with top-level, high-end athletes across multiple sports segments. In my line of business, I am, I'm the safe guy. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of comes down to the people you, you run with, I guess. But, no, man, I tell you, I'm, I'm, man, I'm 52 years old. I don't, uh, I don't take any unnecessary risks anymore. Uh, my brain is good. I can do all the. I know I can do all the things that I think I can do. But my body is is uh, more of a beer drinker's body now than than um, what I used to be. But no, I mean I love free diving, spear fishing. I love flying. Um, I tell you, Florida is such a unique uh, area. And within an hour and a half of where we're sitting, right here in Coconut Grove, um, I have two beautiful golden retrievers uh, that are both hunting dogs. I take them up snipe hunting. We do dove hunting. Um, uh, we do ducks, and, and I love cooking. You know, I mean, we live in a great, great spot with a lot of opportunity down here. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. So the, the two things that, that I've done, one is parasailing, which I did not like because I don't agree with the whole aerodynamics of it. I felt very insecure. But I did go hang gliding where, like, you know, I had some dude on top of me. Uh, in a totally professional, <laughs> non, you know, uh, homoerotic way. You know, that was just the way it worked. And uh, I had to, I, I was perfectly fine with the hang gliding because, you know, the lift and the science of it made sense to me. And I was fine. Uh, we were in um, Clu- in Cluiston, right? And, um, and I looked down and uh, I... I said to the guy, what's, 
what's that facility over there? Because most of it was just fields, right? Just agriculture. He goes, oh, that's a research facility on primates. Wow. And I, and, and I said to myself, I'm going to be the guy who the, we, we, we crash into the uh, facility. I get bitten by the primate. I get AIDS. And, and I that's herpes, actually. It's herpes. They give you the herpes, the, the monkeys and silver springs. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, and I'm trying to explain to people, uh, no, actually I didn't get herpes or AIDS like the traditional way. I was hang gliding and we crashed and then the monkeys attacked me. So I was fine with the hang gliding until I found that we were actually circling for some reason over a primate research facility. But other than that, I thought hang gliding was pretty good. Have you ever hang glided or no? You know, what I fly is very similar actually, except for it has power to it because it is a weight shift aircraft. So, you know, it's, it's exactly it goes, like what you're doing. Fast, it goes faster, Ron. It just sounds like something you'd want to do. So, go faster on a hand so, so your ultralight, how low can you fly and how high can you fly? Um, well, it's really rated by my license, right? So a uh, sport pilot, I mean, you can fly, you know, I, I've flown over the ground. You love it in ground effect. You're five feet off, off the water. You can fly really slow. It's super stable and you can see everything. But I mean, this aircraft is capable of doing uh, over 17,000 feet if, if you felt like it. Um, okay. So. Can you breathe at 17,000 feet? I don't know. I'm not going to 17,000 <laughs> feet. Uh, no, actually, I know that the owner of, 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 um, of Signet actually flew one uh, over to the Abacos to deliver one. And, and he hit those maximums and he had oxygen uh, and, a, and a nice jacket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It gets, I think you lose four degrees every thousand feet yeah, or something it, like that. Cold. But no, honestly, when we're flying around, we're usually at about uh, you know 500 to 1,000 feet. Because you're seeing so many things. I mean, you go through Stiltsville and you're seeing all those pockets with, with bull sharks in every single pocket in the winter anyway. Um, you can come over amazing, uh, huge groups of manatees. I fly over the offshore boats fishing for dolphin. I'll fly over the, um, over the weed lines and I can see if there's dolphin on the weed lines. I mean, it's, it, it's really something that once you do it, you're going to say, oh my God. But it, I'll be honest with you, you know, I don't fly it right now. I have to get my instructor uh, back down here because I fell out of recency. And, and I tell you, I lost it. Uh, there's no way you could make me take off right now without my instructor in it right now. Well, that's the first prudent thing you've said in <laughs> literally in an hour. <laughs> so I, this was a great episode. Um, I feel like this is a great ending point that you actually said something sane. So um, b before you go into a, yet another insane experience that you think is sane, but the rest of us is think is just batshit crazy, we'll, we'll, we'll end this episode. I have to say, during this episode, we've cracked a few of these estuary brewing company drifters, and uh, they're just fantastic. They're just fantastic. I I literally cannot wait, and and I'll I'll put a picture on our website when they finally go into the stores and they're just covered in ice, 
And uh, how soon is that going to be? Because, you know, boating season ends around uh, end of October. Uh, are we going to get them before the end of October? Oh, no, no. They should be in, I mean, I think uh, anywhere from, geez, between Jupiter and Key West, there'll probably be several places you can walk in and, and, and get them. Uh, maybe we can post, uh, post up a list of all of the like cash and carry places that are carrying them. Um, I'm sure they got several places this week already. So it's, it's so new that they're just pushing them in. They did the bars and restaurants first. Um, and then there'll be several places you're going to be able to walk in and, and walk out with a nice cold 12 pack. Yeah, if we, if we post a list of where you can get them, that's literally a public service announcement. So I, I can't wait to do that. So wrapping up our second guest ever, I, I, I will give my humble opinion that it was awesome. And uh, this is the Just a Gringo from Miami with special guest Kent Marinkovic. And his sister, the. Hey, that has been so quiet. It must have been a pleasure for you, Ron. Uh, it's funny that you think you were quiet, but I guess by your standards, you were. Who interrupted her date night and nonstop lobster eating because her boyfriend, basically, between her boyfriend and Kent, I don't know if they left any lobsters for anybody else. Jennifer's been having. Lobster omelets for breakfast, lobster rolls for lunch. Yeah, I, I want to hear all the I want to hear all the recipes so we can play a violin. What what have you been making since Mike came back? We did a surf and turf, lobster mac and cheese, lobster stir fry, and lobster on top of a cauliflower pizza. That's about it. We're Man, lobster down. She got me beat. <laughs> wow. So. Is it any wonder that the whole country is moving to Florida? I mean, lobster stir fry and then lobster cauliflower pizza with the freshest, best lobster that you can get anywhere. Sorry, Maine. Our lobster is better. Anyway, this is Just the Gringo from Miami and his gringa sister ending episode nine, segment two of Just the Gringo from Miami. And we will be back uh, next week or so. Uh, with episode 10.